The scripture today will be from Matthew 7, 1 through 6. In your black Bible says page 812. Whatever it says up there. I got to find it too. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Good morning. My name is Kent one of the pastors here at Soma Church, and pray with me. Father God, um, as I said last service, since I feel like I sang like almost every week at nauseam and maybe even to a comical repetition, this word feels like it is crystal clearly written for our culture in our moment right now. That even though you spoke these words 2,000 years ago of what your kingdom would look like, it feels like it was written this morning. And it feels like it has a lot to say to us this morning. And I pray that we would be able to experience it free from all of the anxiety that comes when talking about judgment. All the baggage that comes from talking about situations where we have been judged or we have judged others. And Lord, I pray that we could talk about this as people that are not under condemnation, but through Christ we are invited into a way of living that is free. And I think you have a lot to say about our freedom this morning, and so I pray that you would make it clear, and I pray that you would invite people into freedom. You would talk through all the cultural noise right now, and you would invite people to a place where they could experience what it is to be made in your image and what it is to be in a community where they are seen as pure and holy, not for their own acts, but for yours, not for their own sacrifice, but for yours. And they might extend that same grace and peace, that we might be a people that extends grace and peace to a world who desperately needs grace and peace. But Lord, we can't give what we have not received, so give us a fresh grace and peace this morning. We trust that you will do that, and we pray for your Spirit's help, because we have no real help, uh, hope to get it otherwise. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So this, whether you come from the church, spent every day or every Sunday at least in church, or if you are checking out church and you are checking out Christianity in general, I'm assuming on some level you have heard the concept that is taught from the mouth of Jesus that judge not lest you be judged with the same measure that you measure others to. It is a war cry, I would say, in our culture, possibly Uh, for popularization from Tupac, who said very uh, clearly, only God can judge me. And he's right. By biblically speaking, he's coming from the words of Jesus here. But we've taken it to mean something in all sorts of weird, funky ways we've decided to apply it to our culture. And like we use like, you know, don't judge me or, or judge not in all sorts of circumstances that I guess maybe kind of apply. Like some of them we just use it in like trivial ways. Like uh, this week, uh, my wife and I had a date night. One of our friends from a missional community came and babysat. And we said, hey, you know, this is kind of the sleeping situation for our boys. And if one of them gets out of hand because they're sleeping in the same room and they're both in big boy beds now, which means it's pretty much an all-night party if we don't crack down, that we can, you can take one of them out and take them into our bedroom. And that was prefaced, or I guess uh, punctuated with a don't judge, because people know us, know that we can keep it real clean and tidy on the ground floor. But the way that we do that is still cleaning like six-year-olds, where you just shove everything into your closet from your room. But instead of room to closet, we just go house to room. And so we said, hey, don't judge, but uh, if you have to walk through there. And then we said, and you're going to take our son, and you're going to put him 
in our closet, which has a pack and play, which is only about the size of a pack and play, in which you'll just close him in a very dark closet and he will sleep there for the night until the other one falls asleep and we'll transfer him back when we get home. Again, punctuated by don't judge, because here's the thing about that. Square footage is a real thing, people, and you got to figure out how to deal with it, as well as when you're, like, you're trying to sleep everybody in big boy beds, and as well as lots of wizards and or superheroes have had that narrative in life, so this actually could be the best thing for him. Um, regardless of that, that's maybe one sense of how you've used, or maybe another situation is more pertinent to your life of how you've used, not judge, or you know, don't judge unless you be judged. The other situation I can think of for myself is when I go to buffets. And um, because I, 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 I burn a lot of calories and I burn them for a specific purpose. And uh, I, everyone goes up to the buffet for plate one. Obviously, that's why you came here. You're here to eat, right? And then plate two, a few of you bow out after plate one, which whatever, you're getting taken by the business, but okay. And then most people though, plate two, three, we're all cool. Four, five, and six. And then the occasional seven is where we're separating the men and women from the boys and girls. And uh, it's, it's that moment where you come back proudly with, with plate seven, uh, which is round three of desserts. And all the other evidence, like the staff has not been kind to you and just let the other six just stack right on up there. And on that moment, I simply just get real biblical and be like, judge not, lest you be judged with the measure that you judge others upon. And so... Those are all certain ways that you hear, do not judge. And then you also have the sense of like, maybe you heard it in much more of an angry or much more of a hurtful sense. Like you actually were judged. You were judged by somebody who was simply not thinking about your circumstance or maybe not caring about your circumstance. And maybe they were doing it in a way that said like, they feel like they're better than you and they're looking at you with eyes that are very clear that they are better than you. Some of you who like don't have three kids that are small kids at home like are distracted by this. This is normal for me. Either way, I'll keep talking if you want to keep listening either way. <laughs> but uh, so yeah, you have that sense of like, okay, I was judged. I was judged by a person who just wanted to create a line of why they were better than me. And then some of you, we come to this passage and you're like, I just have honest confusion about it because on some level, aren't we supposed to, as, as Phil said, we're supposed to hold people accountable to, to the words of life. And, and there's ways where I've seen people, and it's not that I, I, I want to judge them. It's just the sense where, like, I, I, I see a pit that they constantly keep tripping and falling into. And, and I want to just point out, hey, here's the pit. But when I did that, it was met with, hey, don't judge me. And they exploded on a level. It just went nuclear. And, and I just decided, okay, fine. I, I, I'm not saying anything again. And I just watch from afar as I see them fall into the same pit. And so we need to figure out, okay, what is Jesus doing here? And, and what is his perspective on judgment? Because I don't think it's any of that. I think it's actually much more life-giving and much more freeing than any of that. And so please, if you would jump in with me, back into the text, if you close the Bible, it's 8.12, and the hardback Bible around you. I just want to wa- uh, walk through it and, and I hope present a pretty powerful truth and a pretty freeing and a pretty beautiful truth. He starts off, as we've been saying, verse 1, judge not, chapter 7, verse 1, judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So Jesus is is dealing with an interesting audience when he preaches the Sermon on the Mount. We've talked a couple times. A certain percentage of the audience are the straight-up least of these of the culture, I mean, up to this point, before he started teaching, he was healing and doing miracles. That tends to attract people that need to be healed and need a miracle. And so he was attracting a crowd of people that would probably not be commonly found in church or not feel welcome. And as he teaches, he's also teaching to a group that either was there or their presence was there, which were the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. And we know that if they're not present, Jesus at least has them in mind to a certain extent because he keeps talking about, hey, you've seen the hypocrites. And Jesus is not trying to be like overly mean. In fact, that was not a term that was ever used to be mean in that day. It was just a term for an actor, somebody who wears a mask, who is not on the outside what they are on the inside. And he said, like, you've seen scribes and Pharisees who 
decided to take the word of God, the, the, the law, and just maybe with a good motive, maybe with a desire to control people, regardless of what it was, just wanted to be like, okay, how do we know if we're obeying the law? So let's do this. This is how you know if you if you did this, if you kept the Sabbath by you didn't do any work and you didn't do any cooking and you didn't unlace a knot or you didn't lace a knot. And they made all these extra rules about, okay, what does it mean to observe the Sabbath? Which was always originally just be a, to be a day where you just proclaim you're not a slave or a robot, but you're a human and can rest in the provision of God. But they made all these extra stipulations of what it meant. And they did that with everything in the law. And then they became experts at keeping score. And they tended to be able to do all the things that they said one should do. But not everybody could. It was a fairly high standard. In fact, if you read just kind of like the laws, the extra extrapolations they'd written on laws, I mean, I don't don't know who really could stand. And I even would be wondering if they were able to keep it in its fullness. And so obviously Jesus is talking on a certain level of saying like, hey, there are hypocrites that are looking around and judging people. And that's in his mind. And that's in our mind. I mean, the most famous scene that gets played out is John 8. And John 8 is the Pharisees who did not, they were not huge fans of Jesus' ministry, mainly because he was calling them hypocrites all the time and threatening their entire source of, of power and control, which is not popular in anyone's mind if that's your thing. So either way, he was saying, hey, they wanted to get him trapped with the people. And not only trapped with the people, they wanted to get him crucified ultimately. And they were successful. But as they do it, they keep like throwing like little tricks, just like, can Jesus, you know, will he screw up if we throw this curveball at him? And one of the curveballs they decide to throw is they decide when apparently there's some sort of public around, they take a woman who they find in the act of adultery. We don't know how they find her. We don't know how that situation went down. But either way, they take her not only in the act, they bring her out naked and they throw her before Jesus. And they say, the law says we should stone this woman. And it does. And they say, what do you say? And Jesus, like a baller, simply says, hey, if you're without sin, cast the first stone. And one by one, they realize, shoot, this didn't work. And they walk away. And Jesus looks at her and says, does no one condemn you? She says, no one. He says, neither do I. Now go and sin no more. And at that moment, we just want to be like, man, that is so punk rock. And we want to like love Jesus in that moment. And we want to like be like, yeah, Jesus says you don't judge. And so if you do judge, then stop your condemning self-righteous judgment. But here's the thing. The church has never had the corner on the market on judgment. Let's be real. The church is no group of saints. I mean, the, the church has always been filled with the self-righteous. Those who believe on some level they are, they're killing it, and there's someone somewhere out there who's not getting it like them. And, and I, I, I'm saying them. I mean, this is, this is our story. I think we have to own this, whether you've done this personally or just being a part of the church. We have to own black eyes, and we have to own that it's not crazy when culture calls us a bunch of judgmental people. In fact, I'm watching Rise right now, which is a show on NBC that just started. Uh, it's by the same showrunners and uh, producers as Friday Night Lights and Parenthood, which I loved both of. I don't, if you haven't seen any of them, it doesn't really matter. Um, but you should go back, uh, particularly Friday Night Lights. Parenthood was also good, but I would have gone for more fictional dramatized football scenes. I love fictional dramatized football scenes. In fact, I, I could watch an entire fictional football season. 16 games, playoffs, Super Bowl, all made up. And I lo- the slow motion effect of that is beautiful, and I love it. But either way, outside of the point, Rise is with a little bit more football scene, so I'm back in there. And it's about high school and putting on a play, and the play has illicit content. And there's a group of parents that come forward and say, hey, we don't want our son participating in this. We don't want our son going to the school anymore. And they keep getting challenged, but they keep just saying, like, no, we're Christians. We believe this, and they're very very unpleasant condemning people. And I want to like in that moment be like, man, this is how the church, this is how the world sees us. And then I have to be in that moment of like, yeah, that's actually a pretty good mirror to hold up. Because sometimes 
we as the church can forget that we bear the words of life and that we did not receive Jesus when he came to us as a judge, but we received Jesus when he came to us like the woman who was naked on the floor and says, does anyone condemn you? And whether there were many condemning you in that moment or not, that somehow you heard from his, from his clear words that he does not condemn you. And that he invited you to, yes, repentance, yes, turning away from sin, but in the sense of you didn't come in here being cleaning up your life, figuring it out, and then Jesus says, now you can, wel- you can be welcomed in. He comes to people like the woman at the well and the thief on the cross who has done nothing good, has only been a burden to the society and the world, has stolen from people, and on the cross yells out to Jesus, remember me when, I come into, when you come into your kingdom. And he says, today you will be with me in paradise. Because in the moment that a person realizes, I need a savior, you don't clean up. You are an enemy of God the moment before you become a son or a daughter. And we as the church so often can forget those words and we can forget that that's how we came in. And all of a sudden we, we, we get a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of spirit moving forward in our lives and then we want to be the ones who now then cast shame and we become the religious hypocrites. And so I think the church needs to take pictures like that and be like, you know what, it's probably more true than it's not. And we probably need to own it more than we don't. And you can't be like, well, I, I'm not condemning anyone. Well, yeah, I, it, it, regardless. It, it, it's, it's part of who we are as a community. And corporate sin sometimes is just like saying, hey, I, I'm sorry, even if the voice wasn't my own. But again, we've arrived at this cultural moment where it used to be like, there was a group of people that just said like, you need to be, more holy. You need to be more like Jesus. And whether they're in the church or maybe they're outside the church, and it's like, people need to do this, and people need to, like, there was all these standards, and there was judgment for those who didn't make those standards. And now culture's gotten to a point where we just judge everybody for everything. We, even right now, the most popular way to judge is not for failing to make a standard. It's for being someone who judges others for failing to make a standard. And we, we, we try to like rationalize it. Well, I'm just judging them for being judgmental. Like I, I, I'm judging the judge, which is the only way to judge. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus is pretty clear. Hey, if you judge people, you will be held to the standard of which you judge others. And right now, I, I, I'm not even saying like this is a political side. I'm just saying we're at a point where like the both sides are just eager to try to figure out whether it's in politics or whether it's in just any other form of just how do we point the fingers of say like, hey, once people who once were victims are, are, are now judging the victimizers. And, and let me say something real quick because you've got to be careful to hear what I'm saying and not hear what I'm not saying. I have no problem with, let's talk about the most popular movement right now that, that might be drawn to mine. I have no problem with the Me Too and the Time's Up movement. There's something really good and right and true that's happening through the Me Too movement, which is basically women and and people of other groups that don't have power in our society saying, hey, we have been being abused by those who have power and we have been failing to communicate about it, not because we didn't want to, but because we were afraid of the consequences of if we did. But now time is up because there's enough people that are not scared anymore. And we've created a culture with, I'm really glad that it's created a place where people can say, hey, it's not okay to abuse someone. It's not okay to lord power over someone. It's not okay to victimize people. And there's a lot of beautiful things that are coming out. And I, I pray that it continues to make those who have wrongly enjoyed wicked privilege to have to rightly be afraid. And, and I recognize that that is a hard word for our culture. But it's something that is creating freedom for those who have not had it. But here's the thing on the other side. Jesus comes bringing the kingdom. And be gracious to me. I know I'm on really thin ice on right now. I'm trying to again, ask you to hear what I say, not what I don't say. Jesus comes and he brings the kingdom. 
And he brings it to the woman caught in adultery. He brings it to the woman at the well. A woman who has a conversation with, who's like, I, you've had five husbands, the man you're living with now is not your husband. And he comes close to her and he brings the kingdom to her. And, and, and he brings it to all sorts of what are described as sinners, which are just the people who everyone assumed that God hated because they were not righteous. And Jesus comes to Zacchaeus. If you grew up in the church, Zacchaeus is just like a little song that you sing about a guy who's a tax collector, and we don't have any of the social norms to realize the heinousness of this man. I mean, people sing songs about Zacchaeus of being a wee little man. I've always been more of the thing of, uh, no, you should... You should more think of songs like, like John Wayne Gacy, which is a song by Sufjan Stevens. Essentially, it just talks about the serial killer who killed people and buried them in the floorboards of his house. That's a much closer picture of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a power user. He used his power given to him by the Roman government to extort his own people. He was a Jew. He decided, I'm going to... I'm just going to use the power that Rome is willing to give somebody to collect taxes. And they, Rome would basically just say, hey, make sure we get this much tax. We don't care how you get it. And we don't care if you take any extra for yourself. And so he would use his power given to him by Rome and use the guards that were given to him by Rome to enforce people to give taxes well above what was actually taxed, which was already astronomically high, to just take from them. If they couldn't pay it, well, then maybe he just takes their stuff or their wife or their children, and makes them slaves or concubines. Zacchaeus is somebody who, in this culture, we would be saying, hey, your time is up. And Jesus comes and he says, I am going to eat lunch with you, which was a huge symbol of just like extending relationship. And it says like the town goes crazy because it's like, People just like look at that and be like, if he knew who this guy really was, he wouldn't eat with this man. He wouldn't extend relationship with this man. If he thinks that he's going to come and be the, the man of God or the son of God is what he claims, then he should certainly know that this guy is somebody who is rejected by God's kingdom. Not because he was a prostitute, not because he was a murderer, not because he was a dealer, not because he was all the people who we think of that Jesus comes and welcomes, but because he was on the other side. And he victimized people. And he deserves what he gets, which is social ostracization and God's good and right judgment. And Jesus shows up and says, Hey, Zacchaeus, I'm bringing a kingdom that's come for you. The kingdom of God, my friends, is the most offensive act in all of history in which God would come to sinners and you can define that as those who are morally bankrupt and you see Jesus dining with the sinners or the ones who are hypocritically holding power over everyone more like the tax collectors or I mean people always like get on the Pharisees and be like man Jesus just came to oppose religious people. Not at all. Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, was welcomed into the kingdom as far as I can tell. It seems like he's there collecting the body of Jesus at the crucifixion. He was a part of the, the disciples. Jesus, ha- Jesus doesn't oppose religious people. He opposes proud people. And proud people are those who look at others and say they're much worse than I. Whatever standard you want to make. And so, yeah, we're just in this weird place right now in culture where, like, some of you might come in and be like, yeah, like, heck yeah, we need to preach on judgment because these people need to quit judging these people's moral decisions. And, and yes and amen, I think Jesus is actually pre- uh, talking to that. And then he also is going to come on the other side, or we're going to come on the other side and be like, okay, and then Jesus needs to rightly condemn these people. And let me be clear, repentance comes to those who enter the kingdom. That those who enter the kingdom realize, hey, 
the kingdom that I'm trying to make, whether it be through my sin or through my power or through whatever, is bankrupt and it's not going to save me. That when Zacchaeus comes and he receives the kingdom, he says, fine, anyone who has wronged, I pay back four times the amount, which would have bankrupted him if everyone took him up on it. But he essentially says, hey, what I've taken from people, I've only taken and taken and taken. And now in this moment, I realize that there is a king and there's a kingdom that I've actually been longing for. And I will give away what I've been putting all my hope in, in his case, his money and his power. So repentance will come. But I just would ask you, who do you judge? Do you judge the prostitute? The murderer, the dealer? Or do you judge the neo-Nazi and the trafficker, the human trafficker, be clear, or those who would use their power to extort it over vulnerable women or children or whoever else is weak in their way? The kingdom is wildly offensive, my friends. If you do not realize it, that it offends you, then I would guess you don't understand the offer that's being made. Because here is just clear, like, uh, like, okay, you're saying, like, if you're here and you're not a Christian, let me just speak to this. If you're like, okay, if everyone just gets in on the, like, oh, it's fine, it's on Jesus' tab kind of thing, then I don't really think that this is a moral situation. I don't think that this is right, and I don't think that God is really that good if that's how he plays this. But the gospel is essentially, and we lose this, that we are all broken, flawed, and in need of God's grace. That whether you did it by going off the deep end or you did it by being the self-righteous one who condemningly looked at all those who went off the deep end, that you have vastly fallen short of what you were created to be. And you, in your sinfulness, have no hope, as we read to and our, our new members assented to, outside of a gospel that says, hey, I come for those who are broken. As Jesus says, hey, I don't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. And so if you're sick, you can be welcome here no matter what your sickness might be. And if you're willing to admit you're sick. And you come and you say, yeah, I, I need a savior. And Jesus comes and he <coughs> lives, pardon me, and particularly on the podcast if you're listening. Um, that was a cough and uh, scared the heck out of you. All right, either way. He comes and he lives righteous on our behalf. But then so many people just want to make it, okay, he lives righteous on your behalf to get you in the door, but then you need to now be more righteous. And that's where the righteousness begins. Like, I'm the one who can actually be righteous, and all the people that, yes, Jesus had to get me through the door, but now I've cleaned up my act on my own, which is never how this thing works. Read the Sermon on the Mount. Can anybody do this? Is anybody proud to say, oh, yes, I... Not only do I not commit adultery, I have never looked at someone lustfully in my heart. Not only do I not murder, I've never been angry with someone in my heart. And I realize every time I do, which for me, I mean, bitterness rages on a pretty daily basis. It's called rush hour. And and beyond that, I will. (laughs) Yeah, right. And beyond that, I just read the, the words of Jesus and regularly Realize if this is what it is to be fully righteous, then I am in need of a savior and in need of a spirit that can empower me to actually live this way. I mean, that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, hey, I'm not trying to put these harsh standards that you can never, I mean, people look at this and be like, this is impossible. Yeah, you're right. It's meant to be done only by realizing I don't get better. I rely more fully on the spirit of God who empowers me to live this way. Now, might that look like I do effort. I I might actually pray. I might actually give my resources away. I might actually do these things, which takes a decision, which takes, well, yeah, absolutely. But even in doing it, I recognize, man, outside of the grace of God, I don't have the will to be able to do this on my own. I don't have the will to keep this up. I don't have the will to have joy while I do this, to not just obey, but to obey joyfully. We're all in need of the blood of Jesus and the power of the Spirit, my brothers and sisters. And, And People who know that, they don't tend to then come and say, okay, now here's the line and everybody come and repent. Because they're aware of their sin, which is actually where Jesus is going to go on to. Verse 3, if you still got your Bible open. 
Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the, spe- uh, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? Essentially what Jesus starts doing is he starts using a metaphor for sin, and it's a really brilliant one, actually, if I could break it down for you just a little bit. I mean, he starts talking about like, okay, imagine that you see a speck of wood in somebody's eye, but you don't realize that somehow you can see that when you have a two-by-four covering your face. And and in that, he really lets us into what sin does. Because sin, it tends to blind us to it in our own lives, but somehow we can see with x-ray vision into everybody else's. I think there's a lot of reasons why that is. And I, I mean, I think like most clearly, we just tend to know all the truths about our situation. And so when we sin, nobody actually does anything that they truly in their heart believes on every level is wrong. I mean, let me clarify. People do things all the time. They're like, you know what? This probably isn't the best. But you have that conversation of why your situation merits it on some level. Of why they, yes, I'm trying to hurt this person, but the truth is, is I just want them to experience justice because they've been so reckless with other people's lives and, and, and other people's souls that they deserve and this needs to stop and they need to know it. And so, yes, I'm hurting them. I realize that's wrong, but on some level it serves a higher justice. Or yet, I, I, I'm, I'm turning to the substance, but like this, this is what I need to get through right now. And, and frankly, I just have been dealt a certain situation that, that I need this. Like no one, no one just like thinks, yeah, I'm doing wrong and I, I, and I have no justification. But here's the thing. You don't look at everybody else's lives. You look at everybody else's lives and you see sin much larger than apparently what you see in your own life because you don't see their situation. This is, modern cinema has really been an aid to us. Um, and the sense where like the last, I don't know, 30, 40 years of m- movies, it feels like every other year or maybe every year, there's going to be a movie and here's going to be your basic plot line. They're going to show you a convicted murderer or, some, uh, or the life of a dealer or somebody who's prostituting on the streets. And they're going to show a pretty grotesque picture of their life to start. And then they're going to start peeling back layers. And they're going to start showing you the home life that they grew up in or the lack of a family or the lack of a parent, the lack of any sort of structure. They're going to start showing you what that then forced them into and the people that have abused them and left them with no options. And, and you're going to watch repeatedly is just eventually you realize, yeah, they're doing some of these things that I probably would say are not good. That when, they, when they murder this person, of course, I, I don't condone the murdering of people, but on some level, I totally get it right now. Because if I were in that situation, if I were in that kind of like walled in on all sides, I probably would react the same way. I think, though, a movie that I heard about, I, I've not seen this film. I feel like I've done this the last couple months. I just like to comment on films I've never seen. Um, but a movie that kind of took this plot in a different way uh, was the movie Wonder, which came out this last year. It tells the story of a boy with a f- highly disfigured face and the story of his parents taking him to school the first day and just praying that God, that, that kids would actually be nice to him. Because his whole life, they've been waiting for the day they drop him off at school. And he looks like a freak. And he's told as much. And the first bit of the movie, I mean, he's a kid in elementary school, and kids do what they would do. They, they make fun of him mercilessly. And eventually a boy who is told by his parents he has to be nice to this boy named Augie, reaches out to Augie and at the beginning is, is kind of scoffed at by everyone. But because his parents continue to press on him, he stays in relationship to Augie. And over time, they form a relationship. And he realizes that Augie actually, under his deformed face, is a really awesome kid. And he's a lot of fun. 
And he says at one point, man, if you could line up all the kids in the school right now, I, if I could only hang out with one, I'd pick Augie. And then the story changes. Because you realize you've been seeing it through Augie's perspective. And you've seen things like Augie's sister react some ways where like, Augie just has like a, an appointment he has to make and she freaks out that, that everything's always about Augie. And you're just like, man, calm down. This kid's like got a deformed face. <laughs> like, like let's, let's be a little bit sympathetic here. And then it shows life from her perspective. And it shows it as a girl who is the normal kid of a two-kid family where your brother is always the one who is in the hospital and you're always going to his appointments. And everyone always, your parents don't mean to, but they subconsciously favor him and, and do things to help support him because he has things that he needs extra support. And you, because of your otherwise normal life, don't get the same kind of support. And you realize when she screams in frustration, when she freaks out in frustration, it's because of the sense of like, I, she too feels like though she doesn't have a deformity on her face, that she's handicapped. And then it shows the school bully, the first one in the, the most ruthless towards Augie's life. And it shows his home situation. Shows the way he's treated by his dad. And it shows, yeah, what he does is really wrong, but man, when he comes to school, he's so wanting to be seen as someone who matters and, and wanting to, to push forward all the shame and all the pain that he feels that he's willing to do it to anyone. And the kid with the deformed face is a really easy target. And you start watching this movie and you start realizing I don't know what's going on in these situations. Sin does that. It tends to make you an expert in everybody else's lives where you don't know all the information, but you tend to be really bad at pointing out all the depths of your own sin because you know all the reasons why. I mean, that's ultimately when we judge It's for two reasons. We're insecure or we're scared. I mean, typically both. I mean, insecurity is like the basis form of judgment. I, there's just a desire in the human heart that wants to be told we're good, that wants to be told we're worthwhile, that wants to be told we're valuable. I mean, there's this parable that Jesus tells where he says, hey, there's a servant who serves his master well, and just like that master and that servant, God one day will say to many of you, well done, good and faithful servant. And there's a part of our hearts that just like longs to be told by a good, loving master and father, we've done a good job. It's the reason, by the way, we have participation medals where it's like, you didn't do anything but show it up, but good job, buddy, because we so desperately need to be told we're good. And the thing is, is when we want to be good, we often figure out, okay, what can I do? How can I take my strengths and make those the standard of which I judge everybody else by. Because it makes me feel like I'm not as bad as them. And then we do it when we're scared. I mean, somebody walks in. She's much more beautiful than you are. He's much more successful, fun, charismatic. And in that moment of being scared and threatened... You might later kind of like try to tear them down amongst people that, you, that know you well and you can kind of do that with. Or you'll just in your own head be like, you, you, find, you try to figure out what is it that I'm better at than them that will make me feel better, the fact that they have a strength that just like trounces me. And so you just switch the standard. Pastors do this all the time. Just a view into the pastor heart. Here's, here's what we'll do. There's a, you, you, you launch a church and... You're, you're growing and you're, you're caring for people and you're, you're preaching the word and, you, and the, there's you know, people like, oh man, I'm helped by this and, and you're shepherding people's lives and people are experiencing transformation. And then another church shows up that's just like doing all that, but it's growing faster and bigger and getting more attention and more recognition. And here's what pastors will do. Well, yeah, that church is growing really fast, but they're not missional like us. We're on mission to the city, dang it. I mean, we... We serve, and their people are really, like, yeah, you can attract them, but they're really shallow. Oh, okay, well, they are on mission. But I bet they don't preach holiness like we do. We 
preach the word and we pe- uh, preach it unapologetically. And I bet they're just doing topical series on stuff like, you know, how to have better biblical sex or something like that. And everyone's really attra- attracted to that. And, uh, but we preach holiness from the word of God. And you just, I mean, you can see it when like a bunch of pastors get in the room, like it just becomes a thing of like, oh, you're growing by that much and you're doing this and this many, oh, like all these things happen. Well, here's what, here's the thing that we're really winning in. And while I'll frame my story in that, well, here we're, we're winning in this over here. And it's just a ways of just feeling threatened and feeling like they want to be good. They want to be significant. They want to be told, well done, good and faithful servant. And so they find the standard in which they win and say, this is what the church really should be about. I bring all this just to bring it into the place of this is what's going on in our hearts. Everybody judges. This is not to just the religious hypocrites. This is to the hypocritical reality of humanity. That we all look around and because we're scared, because we want to be better than we are, because we know we are not good in in and of ourselves. Yes, we're made in the image of God. Yes, we're beautiful. But yes, we are sinful and broken and wicked. And there's some real jacked up things about our lives and about what we think and about what we do. The crazy thing is, We use judgment as a way to feel better when all psychologists will tell you that to judge another person makes two things happen in your life. You feel more insecure and you feel more scared. It creates that which it attempts to destroy. Because now you're judging all these standards and secretly, I mean, it says, like Jesus says, like, hey, you're going to be measured by the measure you measure others with. It's a lot of the word measure right there, but either way. He's not really clear what he's talking about. Like, is he talking about God? Yeah, probably. Like, if you're going to judge others, then you're going to be judged. Is he talking about other people? Yeah. Like, if you're going to, like, say, like, hey, everybody needs to do this, then if you fail to meet that on any way, then look out. But what about yourself? Because when you judge other people, you make a statement in your heart that says this is what people need to be. And somewhere in the recesses of your soul, you know that you're not at the standard you're holding others to. And so you fall into anxiety, depression, and you feel condemned. And so what's the way out? Because I got to get to that, right? (laughs) We're at time. Jesus is going to say, hey, I want you to deal with sin. I mean, that's when he says, hey, like, the funny thing is, is he doesn't, like, get to the end of, like, okay, this is where you judge, this is what you do wrong, and then, okay, so therefore never judge anyone ever. But verse 5, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He says, like, hey, once you realize you're a judgmental person and are sinful and wicked, then deal with that, take it out of your eye, and then make a judgment and approach somebody about that judgment. Everyone uses this text to say, like, you never judge anyone everywhere, ever. No, it's, it's just be careful how you do judge. Because here's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to say, hey, you're going to deal with your sin. And dealing with your sin is not defined as you nail it. And now you go tell everybody how they need to now nail it. But dealing with your sin does this. It makes you extremely humble. Have you ever really tried to, like, stop being bitter? Like actually forgive someone who really wronged you. Or stop lusting and being addicted to pornography. Figure that out over the weekend and then approach somebody else. Or stop needing the approval of others. Dealing with your sin does this. It makes you realize, I am desperately in need of Jesus' blood and the Holy Spirit that nobody can stand. You become a lot like AA in the themes of things I've not experienced myself but been told about. AA, I've been told, is just typically one of the most beautiful environments. Because you walk in and everyone has a problem, typically the same problem. 
And you have to like just own it from moment one. If you want to speak, you have to say, hey, my name is Kent and I'm an alcoholic. You have to own from moment one. The first thing you have to say, this is who I am and I'm blowing it. I am, I am the biggest problem in my life. And because of like, because everyone there, like no one is sitting there being like, you spent your family's security fund to get drunk for the third time this month. Think of your kids. Like nobody's like in that moment, like, oh, uh, like I'm so much nailing it compared to them. Because once they speak, they say, no, no, I'm Chris and I'm an alcoholic. And now we turn it back to the sense of like, I am also ruining my life. And so there's this environment of everyone knows I'm no better than anyone in this room. We're all losing and we all need each other. And we all probably don't know all the situations they're dealing with. And we know this is really hard. But then they don't just be like, okay, so now that we've all just like established that fact, everyone go home and do whatever you want. But they actually are like this perfect mix of love and truth. Man, we love you. We'll walk alongside you. You can admit the depths of your soul and I won't bat an eye because I've probably been there myself. Which is true about Christians and your sin, by the way. It's why... I can sit across from you and hear some really wicked things and and find those own seeds or those own actions in my heart or in my life. And then as I receive and give you grace, I then can invite you to freedom. Because here's, here's why those who deal with their sin don't just come with grace that doesn't move to truth. Because if you've experienced freedom from sin you know how powerful it is and you want that for people you care deeply for. You love them so much that yeah, you're going to risk relationship at times. You're going to invest deeply in them. You're going to try to like, I'm just going to invest in them so I can say, not just so I can say a hard word. I'm not just like making them a project, but I love them. I want to be around them. And the more I'm around them, eventually I'm going to say a hard word. And I'm going to use the right timing, which is actually what the whole last verse is about. You get that point where like, Jesus all of a sudden has this non sequitur about pigs and dogs and pearls. You're like, wow, Jesus just had like a random thought about, you know, agricultural life and what to not feed your your animals. And what's going on is two things. People say, hey, he's either saying, hey, there's a way to approach a brother or sister that's in sin. You just need to know, like, you might love them. It might be truth, but you need to sense this is just not the time they can receive it right now. And it might not always be the time. You need to wait for the time. But right now you're throwing them life and and they just, for whatever reason, they're not ready to receive it. And they're going to hurt you when you you go to do it. Or it's saying, hey, this is to non-Christians. This is to people outside the kingdom. Dogs were usually the reference to people outside the kingdom. Pigs, obviously not usually associated with Jews. And so uh, all these things are saying, no, these are people outside the kingdom. And when you invite them in, when you evangelize, when you say, hey, here's the word of life, here's the entry into God's kingdom, this is the kingdom that's come for you, there's some people that are in a place that, man, they, it's not wise just to push harder and push harder, but sometimes you need to realize, hey, I, in all love, I'm going to back off. Maybe I'm not the person to say this to them right now. Maybe this isn't the time to say this to them right now. Always saying the truth, even when it's in love, sometimes is not the right time but you stay with those people, you walk alongside them, you, you give time to change, and you eventually say hard truths because you love people enough to do so, because you've experienced the freedom that comes with getting out of the shackles of sin, and you want that for people. You, I mean, why would you not want that? And I'll, I'll be humble, I'll be patient, I'll be relational, I'll wait for the time, and I'll speak very boldly. And I'll speak in a way that reflects how Jesus came to me. He doesn't come saying, if you do enough good to counteract all the bad, I'll let you in. He doesn't say, well, I'll save you from the past, but you've got to, you're on your own moving here on forward. He comes and says, hey, does anyone condemn you? Because I don't. Now come into my kingdom come into freedom. Go and sin no more. Yeah, you're going to struggle in that. And yeah, you're going to fail a thousand times. And yeah, you need my grace and you need my spirit. But I'm patient. My burden is really light. 
all the world is saying, be stronger, be better, put your best foot forward, like tailor your resume. And Jesus comes and says like, hey, can we just be honest and you be weak? Because I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. I mean, that's the words that we extend to you at communion. Communion is an act of remembering that Jesus, his death and sacrifice cleanses the Christian, the believer in that from all their sin. And his life and resurrection are a picture of the life and the record that are now yours. I mean, you are seen fully perfect, fully beautiful in Christ. Not by anything that you're going to do this afternoon, but in spite of all that, that has now been crucified on Jesus, and he gave you his whole resume. There's nothing you can do this afternoon that's going to make Jesus's resume more impressive. And for the Christian, that's true of you. And this meal reminds you that wherever you came from, wherever you go from here, you are in the family. As you Jesus humbly walks and patiently walks and lovingly leads you towards repentance and faith and freedom in the kingdom. Because why wouldn't you want that? And so if you're a Christian, then I invite you to come to the stations around the room, tear the bread, dip it in the cup. If you're not a Christian, we're glad you're here. Continue to wrestle with these truths or ask questions or be prayed for, have conversations. Um, don't come forward and take this meal. It's, that's all what it means. And for you, it's just bread and juice, and, and you don't have to feel weird about not coming forward. We're glad you're here. Let me pray. Father God, I pray for you to give us wise, loving, compassionate hearts that are more acquainted with our own sinfulness than the sin of others so that we might lovingly and patiently walk alongside those who desperately need to hear a message of freedom, but need to hear it in a tone of voice that actually sounds like an invitation to freedom and not a condemnation of shame and judgment. Lord, I confess that, that I, I often judge others, maybe not publicly like others in the church, but I find little ways to judge even the church and I forget, too, of how, how self-righteous and how hypocritical my own heart is. I pray, Lord, that we'd be a people that wouldn't get too far from that, but would also hold on to the deeper reality. We wouldn't just be ones who sit in our, our sin, but we walk into freedom and recognize we've got good news. A- and we can really enjoy the fact that we are seen perfect in you. I just think maybe what the world needs to see more than everything are joyful Christians that actually buy what they're selling. That we are now sons and daughters of God. There's no condemnation. And we have the invitation to invite anyone, regardless, in spite of anything they've done, to accept the same thing we have. Lord, let thousands do, not for our numbers, not so we can boast but so that we might be in deeper relationship with the humanity you've made and the kingdom that you're extending. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.